electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to our special two-hour Fed coverage. I'm Kelly Evans alongside Tyler Matheson, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as we enter the final 60-minute countdown to the central bank's decision on interest rates. A pause expected today, but where we go from here, that is less certain. And adding to that uncertainty are labor strikes, rising energy prices, and a looming government shutdown. We've got team coverage from the stock market to the bond market to the economy and how rising rates impact the consumer. Plus, uh, how much a possible government shutdown could complicate matters for the Fed and the markets. That's all ahead. But we begin, as we so often do, with Steve Leisman, who's across town at the Federal Reserve. Steve, it is all about the forecast today. Yes, that's right, uh, Tyler. The Fed expected to hold rates steady, but the focus is going to be on how Fed Chair Jay Powell thinks about recent economic challenges. you got the auto worker strike. You have high oil prices, a canon oil drum for the Fed, higher long-term yields and a potential government shutdown. Beyond that, the focus, is, as Tyler said, is on what the Fed signals through its forecast for rates in the economy this year and next. Fed funds futures trading today. No chance of a hike built in for today, but a 30% probability for November, 40% Sorry, right for November and 40% for September. Meanwhile, there's a 43% probability of a rate cut priced in for June. But when you look at the actual yields, the expectations for next year are a lot higher than they were back in May. The result, you had stronger growth, you had more hawkish Fed speak, more debt issuance. All that's convinced the markets that the Fed is going to be higher for longer than previously expected. Given that success so far, I think it's unlikely the Fed is going to give markets a reason to think the Fed will be easier next year, especially because it's still fighting the inflation battle. The reckoning of whether the Fed is too high next year can wait, guys, for next year. You know, I promised myself coming into this, Steve, that I wasn't going to use the phrase dot plots, and I'm going to violate that promise and, and now. you will notice that I did not, Tyler. You, you did, not. I did not. You're much it. more artful at this it was than a I am. Dot plot, free, dot plot free report that I just gave you there. But really what we're talking about when we <laughs> refer to that are the, are the projections of the Fed members. Yes. What are those projections likely to show? That the economy mm-hmm. is hotter than they expected the last time they did this? That inflation is lower than they expected? That they expect one more interest rate cut? What? You know, we have a chart on that, Todd. I don't know if they can call it up on the wall, but but we did look at it. First of all, their GDP outlook is just way off base. They're looking for 1% this year. You've averaged 2% so far, and it's probably going to be higher. You'd have to have a really lousy fourth quarter. So they have to upgrade their outlook for GDP this year. You wonder if they do it again for 2024, where it was 1% uh, for 2024. They've had the inflation thing about right. They've had the funds rate forecast about right and that three tenths of a percentage point increase the unemployment rate in the last report helped them out getting closer to that unemployment rate for next year so they may have to tweak a little bit around the edges the big question is what they do tyler for um the funds rate forecast which they had at 4.6 could go a little higher 
I think my, the line of the day goes to Peter Bookvar, who said, it's not a dot plot, it's a dartboard. Yeah. <laughs> Something to that effect. Steve, thank you very much. We appreciate it for now. Our Steve Leesman. All right, let's get straight to our first panel now. Opinions are mixed on whether a recession is still in the cards, but uh, they're united, basically, on a rate pause today. Here on set with us is Jamie Cox. He's the managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Good to have you with us. Uh, also joining us is Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy at Societe Generale, and Mark Zandi, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist. Mark, I'm going to begin with you because in this panel, I think you are alone in believing with some degree of certainty that the Fed is likely finished raising interest rates for this cycle. Why are you persuaded that that is the case? Uh, and how does banking and a possible banking crisis and a possible concern about breaks in commercial real estate figure in to that hypothesis that the Fed is done. Yeah, indeed, uh, I'm I'm confident. You know, I do a lot of forecasting, Tyler, and some things I'm confident in, some not so much. I, here, I'm pretty confident that the Fed is uh, done. Lots of reasons. Uh, most importantly, inflation is uh, coming in. It's moving in the right direction. All the trend lines look really good here. Uh, you know, obviously, this recent run up in oil prices could be a risk, but you know, uh, barring that, I think. Inflation will be back to their target more or less by this time next year. And that does not require any more rate hikes by the Fed. Second, the economy's throttling back. Job growth is slowing. Businesses are cutting back hours. Uh, and most importantly, the labor market, which is tight, is easing up. Wage growth is moderating, very consistent with their, their forecast. And then finally, uh, as you point out, the banking system it's still very fragile. I mean, it's uh, you know it's uh, stable because of all the policy response back in in March, but it's shaken. Uh, the the operating environment for the banking system is very poor, and if the Fed keeps on raising interest rates, I think that would uh, you know do the banking system in in the broader economy unnecessarily so, given that inflation is coming in and the economy is moderating. So everything points to no more rate hikes. Subhadra, it seems for the markets like a lot of this comes down to that dot plot that Tyler and Steve were just talking about. And specifically right now, there's about four cuts, four quarter point cuts priced in for next year. A lot of people are saying, you know, if we get fewer cuts, uh, expect bond yields to shoot higher. If it kind of stays where it is, then maybe people keep buying the 10 years like they've been doing since we hit 437 earlier today. Yeah, that's that's uh, absolutely how I view it as well. I completely agree with Mark's views on uh, the Fed being done for this cycle. The rates market is really priced to perfection. You're looking at the market pricing in maybe a 50% probability of another hike by the end of the year uh, at the December meeting, and then for three, maybe three to four cuts for next year. So the, given the fact that the market's really priced to perfection to the Fed's dot plot, I think any surprise you get on the dot plot, whether it is to perhaps more uh, cuts, I mean, more cuts for next year or less cuts uh, for next year, I think the market is really positioned to, to move in either direction. So we'll be really watching the dots uh, closely in the rates market more than anything else. We still think that the Fed is done. I think if they keep policy restrictive and, and keep it at these current levels, I really don't see uh, the, you know, the, uh, the bond market and bond yields rising meaningfully from here. So we'll really be looking towards the dot plot to, plot to see to get a first read on what the Fed is thinking for next year. 
Subaru, you call it a hawkish pause or a pawkish hawse. I'm not sure which it is, but Jamie, I noted when Mark was chatting there, you were slowly nodding your head. I'm not sure whether that was suggesting agreement or a cat ready to pounce on his arguments. It wasn't the latter, but I, I will tell you, I have I thought, and last time I was here with you guys, that the Fed should have paused earlier than they did. Not that was char- June. Yes, June. Not characterize it as a skip, but actually say, full-on, we're done. And I think it's actually safer for the Fed to be finished with rate hikes now and not have to pivot early next year and go into rate cuts, because that's the last thing they want to do. They don't want to have the communication problem that they've had over the last couple of years, where they say there's no inflation, and it turns out there is lots of inflation, where they have to then chase it with rate hikes. They don't want to do that again, because they've finally gotten the market on board with their communication strategy. And I think that's where they need to keep the market. And if they do anything to mess it up, it's just going to make the the policy response more complicated, and it could influence the recession. So I think that that's where where you're going to see Powell try to walk the fine line today. In in the three months or so since we last saw you, and you were clear back then that they should pause, absolutely. Uh, We've probably had mostly better than expected economic data. Uh, We've had more inflation overseas and things. So I, I think it's great to hear that you're still firmly in the pause camp. And what about the fact that, as Steve was talking about earlier, you know, a lot of the coincident numbers have come in stronger than expected. Obviously, you know, the stock market, not quite as glamorous as it was in the first half, but um, credit markets have been doing quite well. I mean, what do you what do you make of those developments? Well, I think that we have not yet seen the effects of the banking system issues earlier in the year. And I think markets are sort of looking at that and saying, gosh, there's going to be some problems. We just don't know what they are. They're going to materialize. It's impossible to think that you could have interest rates rise as quickly as they did in such a short period of time and it not have some impact. And you're starting to see the consumer start to slow down. And these are the things that have kept inflation maybe a little bit higher than, you know, the the supply side is now sort of cooperating a little bit more. So you should see inflation moderating. The problem is, is that when inflation probably stops in this cycle, it's probably likely to go down quickly. Do you think? Yes. You don't, you're not in the camp of the last mile is going to be the hardest mile well, for... Well, you think about it. We're, we're, the, markets has, the markets have come to the conclusion that there's going to be higher for longer. Well, that's probably... The, when you get to consensus in markets, it's typically wrong. Right. So, so in my view, you're probably looking at rate cuts sooner than later as a result. Mark Sandy, let me ask one quick question, if I might, to you. Is the possibility of a government shutdown in a peculiar way something that could help the Federal Reserve in that the economy will be shaved and potentially slowed by a little bit because of that? No, uh, the economy doesn't need to be shaved. The economy is like right on track. It's, you know, the Fed has it right where it wants it. So we don't need a government shutdown. I mean, if it's a two, three-week shutdown, no big deal. But if it extends on a month or you know six weeks, uh, that becomes a problem, and it weighs on growth unnecessarily so. And you've got, uh, Tyler, a bunch of other headwinds to think about here, too. They're going to hit in the fourth quarter. Student loan payments, we've talked about that, the UAW strike, the higher oil prices I just mentioned. So, no, we, we, don't, we really don't want a government shutdown. Well, on that note, let's turn to Rick Santelli, who is out at the CME watching yields for us today. And Rick, we had some big headlines earlier on 437. We're down at 431 now. So are they selling the rumor or are they buying it? You know, I'm not sure if they're selling the rumor, buying the fact. But what I can tell you is, is that just because rates are down a bit today, I wouldn't draw any significant conclusions. If you look at a chart since the 13th, which was CPI day, which, by the way, uh, core Ex-food and energy year over year, let me see. It was 4.3. Before that, it was 4.7. Before that, it was 4.8. Before that, it was 5.3. You get the picture. It's coming down all the way into the fours. 
Let's see, where's the Fed at? Oh, in the twos. But yet, everything's okay. Nothing to see here. Look at the charts of twos and tens. Climbing steadily, taking a bit of a breather today. That's not shocking. A lot of traders aren't going to put their capital to work today necessarily. But here's the important thing, in my opinion. Yesterday was a key day. Two-year, three-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year, all made new high-yield closes for the cycle. Look at them all on that chart. All of them but sevens. Yesterday's close, the highest yields going back to 07. Do we think the market has an opinion here? And the only reason you can't include seven years because they were brought back in 09. So they can't go back to 07. So 20s haven't done it. 30s haven't done it. But they probably will. The point is the markets can look at talk. They can look at guidance. But the market's where the action takes place. And that action has not been in the same frequency as the Fed. It was moving lower when the Fed was aggressive. It's moving higher now that the Fed's saying, really, honestly, cross our hearts, we're done. But the issue is the market senses there's a stickiness to inflation. The Fed could strip out food and energy all day long, but the average American can't. Back to you. Absolutely the fact. Rick Santelli, thanks very much. Subhadra, let me turn back to you, if I might. You say you expect the 10-year yield at the end of this year to be about three and three-quarter percent, and by the end of next year to bottom, or at some point next year, to bottom at three and a quarter percent. Why do you say that? That's quite a decline from where we are today at 4.3. That's right. Um, I think for all the reasons that Mark was talking about, we are expecting a meaningful slowdown in the third, uh, the fourth quarter after uh, you know, a tremendous summer splurge and consumer spending and retail sales being extraordinarily strong. You, know, you do have a bunch of headwinds. You have student uh, loan uh, moratorium ending, uh, ending uh, delinquency rates are rising. Uh, the consumer is starting to come under pressure because of higher gas prices. So you're really seeing a lot of headwinds um, that we, uh, in the fourth quarter, that I think you should start seeing a meaningful um, you know, decline in, in, in yields in, in the fourth quarter. But we also have a recession penciled in for the middle of next year. Uh, so in that sort of context, it makes sense that we should start seeing yields gradually decline and perhaps bottom out in the, in the, uh, some, somewhere in the second to third quarter of next year, around three and a quarter percent. That said, we don't really have yields going down dramatically from here on. So it's much more of a gradual decline as we head into a recession next year and then start to rise again in the fourth, fourth quarter when we get past a, perhaps a modest recession. And Jamie, because you also share this view that we're at the end of the rate hike cycle, you think that means that cash may no longer be king. What are the ramifications of that? That's a good thing, actually. I mean, there's been money parked on the sidelines for quite some time now, just enjoying 5%. And when that becomes, you know, less attractive, that money's got to go somewhere and it will go back where it came from, which is in equities and fixed income. So, so we've heard people, Tom Lee, yesterday on this program said he thinks that financial conditions will ease and support, for instance, um, you know, the, the mega caps, the high value tech stocks, even the industrials into year end. He's also likes energy. But um, is that the kind of easing of financial conditions, so to speak, or the return of risk into the market that you think would be supportive of that kind of stock move into the end of the year? Well, typically when you have an end of a rate cycle, you know, it, it usually propels stocks. In the, in the 18 months after the Fed pauses, usually the S&P 500 is up 16 to 17 percent. And so it probably might even be better because there's been such a lag in returns of most asset classes outside of technology. So you see healthcare, industrials. I think those are very solid places where people could put money to work now and not just wait and 
until the Fed says all clear, we're not raising rates because it's too late at that point. Do you think it's already priced in, though, because the fact that we have 88 basis points worth of cuts, three to four cuts next year already in the in dots as of last meeting, is that why stocks in the first half? I mean, was that the reason for the whole rally? Have we already seen that move? I don't think it was the reason for the rally. I think it's predominantly because of information technology stocks being beaten down so much. And then you had this sort of this renaissance moment when you had the AI opportunity. I think that's specific to that sector, but the rest of the sectors didn't play along. And so what you're going to see is this broadening effect where everyone else will sort of catch up. And that's what you'll see with healthcare and industrials in particular. All right, folks, we have to leave it there. Jamie Cox, always good to see you. Subhadra Rajapa, thank you. Mark Zandi, always great to be with you, my friend. And we're just getting started on our CNBC special edition of the Exchange and Power Lunch. Coming up, an inside look at the rising shutdown risk on Capitol Hill. We just mentioned it in the conversation there. And why the economic data that the Fed desperately depends on could be in jeopardy as a result. Plus, rising rates rocking Main Street, the fallout for consumer spending, the mortgage market, and prospective home buyers. We are also tracking the negotiations between the UAW and the big three automakers. One of their sticking points shows that inflation worries aren't going away anytime soon. And as we go to break, let's get a look across the markets at the setup into this expected Fed pause. The decision in about 43 minutes' time. The Dow's up 229. The S&P's up eight points. As you can see, uh, the 10-year yield has backed off considerably, 4.31%. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to this special edition of The Exchange, live from the nation's capital on a beautiful almost fall afternoon. Lovely. This is D.C. where you like it. Uh, today's Fed decision, it is front and center, of course, for investors. But don't forget, we are only about 10 days away from a potential government shutdown if Congress can't come together on an agreement. And that looks increasingly unlikely. So what's on the table? CNBC Washington correspondent Emily Milt Wilkins is on Capitol Hill with the latest. Hi, Emily. Good afternoon, Tyler. Well, yes, uh, we're 11 days away now from a government shutdown, and there is still no compromise on the table for how things are actually going to be moving forward. And look, lawmakers were supposed to depart yesterday, or rather, sorry, tomorrow on Thursday. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, had says, has said no. They got to stay on Friday, they got to stay on Saturday, and they got to get this done. They are still currently negotiating over that potential stopgap Republican plan that would have the government funded 
lasted from the end of September until October 31st and would include some Republican priorities, things like building the wall at the border and limiting asylum, wall-cutting spending. And McCarthy told reporters this afternoon he is open to any other ideas that members of his party have for what should be in the stopgap bill. Republicans will be meeting later this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and we expect to hear a little bit more about what they're thinking. But really, there's only so much McCarthy can wind up doing here. There are some members of his party that just do not want to pass any sort of stopgap at this point. And even if there is a way forward on this Republican-backed temporary funding bill, there's really no chance that it's going to go forward in the Senate. So a lot of gridlock here in Congress. But we are seeing some progress on legislation that actually passed a year ago, the CHIPS bill. Today, the Department of Defense came out with an announcement. It's the first funding that's really being allocated from the bill. And it's going to go to eight regional hubs across the country, $238 million there. And really, it's kind of the first sort of signs of this bill that passed so long ago actually getting out into the economy and beginning to influence things. Tyler? Emily, if I may, I'm glad that you just mentioned that because on a day when the Federal Reserve is uh, part of its campaign to kind of tame inflation by taking uh, liquidity out of the economy, you're telling us that there's the spigot from Washington is really just getting, maybe not getting started, but uh, consistently heading down the pike here with all of this funding that's about to be doled out. Yeah, remember, it's not just the CHIPS bill. You also have that bipartisan infrastructure bill. You also have that tax plus environmental plus health care package. So a lot of things that Congress is doing are actually really now starting to be seen. And Democrats are hoping that that's going to make a political difference for them. But, of course, this rollout is going to take a number of years. And it's going to be quite a while before we start seeing the finished product from these bills. All right, Emily, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Indeed. Wilkins. Our next guest warns that a shutdown could trigger an economic data blackout ahead of the Fed's November rate decision, and it would impact two of the most important data points for the Fed before their next meeting, the jobs report and the CPI. For more, let's bring in Alec Phillips, chief U.S. political economist at Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Good to see you. It's nice to be with you in person. Thanks for having me. Before delving into all of that, can I just bounce off what Emily is saying with the government shutdown? Small uh, overall economic risk, it seems. Um, But is there anything from, uh, we'll get into the data piece of this in a moment, but anything else that you're watching just from a big picture GDP economy interest rate point of view? Um, So we wrote something recently about what we call the Q4 pothole. So basically you've got student loans uh, restarting, you've got the auto strike, and then you've got the shutdown. Um, Those three things together, we think, takes growth from probably a little bit more than 3% in Q3 to around 1% in Q4. So it's, you know, it's going to be a pretty uh, substantial slowdown. With that said, as long as the shutdown lasts for, you know, a couple of weeks, which is our base case, then it should be manageable. You know, if the shutdown lasts for a long time, then maybe not quite as manageable. But, of course, it's temporary, no matter what. The government will eventually reopen, even if it does shut down. And it's also, you know, fairly predictable. We know it's worth about two-tenths of a point off of growth per week. So you can measure the weeks and you kind of know what you get. Right. And you, whatever comes out of uh, near-term GDP gets added in the long run. So, again, maybe the most impactful part of this could be the data blackout. And if we have a full government shutdown like we had a decade ago, 
no reports from Labor Department, from Commerce. That's where we get uh, what was referenced. If it's a partial shutdown, like in 2018, 2019, I think it was, yeah. we did still get those reports. But is We there got any, some of them. We got some of them. Yeah. Is there any chance that they would deem these essential work and kind of let them still put out these key reports, do you think? So right now, the BLS has already said, so on the on the labor side, has already said that they will not be able to put out the reports. So the answer seems clear enough. Now, if the shutdown were to go on and on and on, eventually maybe they would have to revisit that. But of course, the challenge is it's all based on surveys. So if you shut down the government, do you have the surveys on which that data report is, you know, based? So, you know, I think the the short answer is a brief shutdown means that we get the September reports on uh, employment and on inflation delayed for, you know, probably a couple of weeks, but still in time for the November FOMC meeting. A longer shutdown means that in November, the FOMC is maybe flying blind. Let's talk about what is at the heart of this disagreement between the GOP in the House, basically, and the rest of Congress, the Senate. I thought that—tell me I'm crazy here—but I thought when they hit the debt ceiling agreement that the spending disputes were settled. But it seems like they are anything but settled. You're not crazy. And, and they, oh, they should have been. <laughs> it should have been settled. But now they are 120 billion apart, right. uh, or roughly so. And the GOP wants uh, to cut domestic spending or uh, n- discretionary spending, non-military, uh, not veterans affairs. And they want to uh, move forward on the building of a border wall. These feel like things that uh, are outside of that earlier agreement. Yeah. So I think what happened when when we saw the debt limit deal put together, I think there was a general understanding that that was going to be more or less the spending level that we'd end up getting uh, for the coming fiscal year. Frankly, I think that is still basically the spending level that we're going to get for the coming fiscal year. But uh, Republicans in the House have decided that they still want to aim for something lower than that. And they will point out that, in fact, the debt limit deal was a cap on spending. It wasn't necessarily the actual spending and number. They, they were mm, not. Mm, the seeds mm. of this were planted because I recall when when McCarthy kind of suddenly agreed to this deal that those on the further right of his party were quite upset at the time. Right. And it seems as though from that moment they've been kind of plotting to say, you know, we want to cut spending or add this funding, and this is now our chance to do it. And you know, to be clear, this is basically what happens every time. The difference is that right now, the folks who are not getting what they want, and nobody gets everything they want in Congress usually, um, are in a position maybe uh, to stop a spending bill from passing, as long as Republican leaders want to pass it in the House with only Republican votes, because the majority is just that Do you think they'll end up passing it with the Democrats on the contours of what was already agreed to? I think it's unlikely that um, the shutdown, if it happens, will last forever. And I think it's unlikely that they'll be able to get President Biden to sign a bill into law that has unanimous Republican support. Therefore, I think it's likely that ultimately uh, there's a bipartisan deal to probably reopen the government after it shuts down at something similar to the spending level that was in the debt limit deal earlier this year. And will it be most Democrats voting for it and a few Republicans or most Republicans and a few Democrats? I think if Speaker McCarthy uh, were to get what he probably wants, it would be, you know, a little bit more on the Republican side. But it's going to have to probably be split, split how, pretty How endangered is Speaker McCarthy? 
as, um, as a factor of this. After That's, all the celebratory articles that were written just a few short months ago, mm -hmm. let's remember. That's a good question. Um, and I think there's a good chance that we'll never actually find out the answer, because ultimately the answer is, can he survive a so-called motion to vacate? Um, that motion may come. I am personally a little skeptical that he would be removed through that kind of a motion. But I'm also a little bit skeptical that we'll ever actually get to that point. Hmm. Um, I think the way this gets resolved is we have a shutdown. We probably don't see that motion come ultimately. And then the government reopens maybe with a small, you know, sort of token gesture so that uh, Republicans in the House can feel like they got something out something of the process. Out. All right. All right, Alec, thank you very much. Great to see you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you, Alec Phillips. And coming up, a government shutdown isn't the only looming risk to the economy. As the UAW strike enters its sixth day, a key wrinkle in the negotiation shows that the fight against inflation still has a long way to go. Just over 30 minutes now till the Fed decision. We will be back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. We've got some breaking news on the UAW strike. Let's get straight out to Phil LeBeau with the latest. Phil? Kelly, as expected, General Motors has idled its plant in Fairfax, Kansas. That is just west of Kansas City. That's where they make the Cadillac CT4 as well as the Chevy Malibu. That means that they will be laying off approximately 2,000 workers there. And as you take a look at the latest developments regarding the UAW strike, we will likely see more of these types of layoffs. Stellantis today announcing that it has begun layoffs at some of its facilities, the most notable being in Toledo, where they are laying off 68 people, expect to lay off another 300 at facilities in Kokomo, Indiana. Automakers are pushing back on messaging. We are increasingly hearing from them that the messaging coming from the UAW is misguided and wrong. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Remember, there's a deadline Friday at noon Eastern where the UAW wants to see serious progress towards resolving these issues and getting a contract in place, or else they could announce more layoffs. Let's go through each of these. Stellantis, it's going to be laying off 68 employees in Toledo. They expect to lay off approximately 300 more at their facilities in Kokomo, Indiana. As for General Motors, as you take a look at shares there, I talked about the layoffs happening uh, at its plant in Kansas. The GM president, Mark Royce, out with an op-ed today in the Detroit News saying that there is a flow of misinformation coming from the UAW. Remember, GM is offering a 20% wage hike to the union. And finally, you've got Ford. It has reached a tentative agreement. Ford of Canada reached a tentative agreement with the union up north of the border. Unifor is the name of that union. So now we see what happens with GM and Stellantis. They still need to negotiate with Unifor. Bottom line is this, guys. We are nowhere close to seeing a resolution to this disagreement over a contract between the UAW and the big three automakers.
Is there a scenario, Phil, and how likely is it of a nationwide strike against by the UAW against the automakers? Right now, they are it seem to be targeted uh, yeah. uh, shutdowns and targeted shutdowns of uh, factories. Uh, it is possible, but they've already said that they plan on these strategic strikes. And the, and the strategy here, Tyler, is essentially them saying, we want to keep the automakers guessing. We're not going to shut them all down at one time. Mm -hmm. And we are theoretically on Friday at noon. We will hear about another plant, another two plants, maybe another three plants where they have decided, you know what, we're going to walk off the job there. Doesn't shut down the entire company if you're GM or Ford or Stellantis, but it adds pressure. And that is what the UAW is looking to do here. Economic point, I think these workers would be able to get unemployment benefits, maybe be counted uh, and as unemployed, whereas striking workers, uh, not so much. Phil, for now, thank you very much. Correct. We appreciate Awesome. Okay, good, good, good. We're always looking for that uh, impact. If we get <laughs> the reports uh, for October in particular, which will show the fuller effect. Let's get to Contessa Brewer in the meantime for a CNBC News update. Contessa? Kelly Tyler, President Biden is expected to announce tomorrow a $325 million military aid package for Ukraine. The announcement coincides with President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Washington. The weapons package reportedly would include more short-range air defense systems and a second round of those controversial cluster munitions. South Korean police are accusing American soldiers of smuggling and distributing synthetic marijuana in the country. 17 soldiers allegedly imported 12 ounces of the drug through the U.S. military's postal service. A detective in the case said all the soldiers were allowed to return to the military base after questioning, but one is being detained within the base. Companies on Facebook and Instagram soon will be able to buy a blue check to get exclusive features and support. Businesses can buy verification for $22 a month on one platform, $35 for both. They'll get added account security features and troubleshooting and also reportedly would get increased visibility into searchers and the ability to have multiple employees chat with and respond to customers. So that's what's happening on the social platforms. Tyler. All right. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Contessa sure. Brewer. Still ahead, it is no secret that mortgage rates have skyrocketed in the past couple of years as the Fed has raised rates. But if you're still looking to buy a home right now, you will not believe how badly that has hurt your buying power. We've got the shocking number next. Welcome back to our special Fed coverage for this historic day. The historic pace of rate hikes certainly pressuring the consumer from credit card interest to mortgages. The cost of living has gotten a lot more expensive. And drilling down on housing, the current rate on a fixed 30-year mortgage sitting at 7.3%. Two years ago, that number was 3.03%. To talk about what those rate rises mean, let's bring in Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate. Ted, welcome. Good to have you with us. So that jump from 3% to above 7%, what does it do uh, to purchasing power for a home buyer? How much does it cut it? It cuts your purchasing power by about 40%. So in other wow. words, if you could afford a $375,000 house at 3%, now, with rates over seven, you're probably looking at something like a $225,000 house. And there aren't that many of those. That's another key point is that low inventory plus high rates, we're talking high prices, high rates. It's a tough situation. 
So it's a tough situation. So I, I guess if I were in the market to buy, what I would be doing if I were faced with that dilemma would be looking at adjustable rate mortgages where I can at least buy some time at a lower rate and maybe get into that $375,000 house, even though I would not have the certainty of a 30-year fix. Is that what hap what's happening? Some people are talking about dating the rate and marrying the house, as in you're betting on refinancing down the road. I still think, though, that the 30-year fixed is the best gauge of affordability. I mean, it may not always be the best product for everybody, but it's just a slippery slope. You know, if you're betting mm -hmm. on refinancing and what if that doesn't work out for one reason or another? Rates don't move as expected or you lose your job or you have to move and sell the house. I, I think there's some risk here. Another thing we're seeing is that home builders and sellers are sometimes offering incentives like rate buy downs, for example, to cushion the blow for buyers. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, Ted, we've been focusing on the impact to the housing market. The auto market is a little bit different, but it's still massive. I think the second biggest in terms of outstanding debt. And we're seeing many more cracks there already than we are on the housing side of it. What's going on with autos? Subprime auto delinquencies are actually worse now than they were during the Great Recession. And I think wow. that speaks to the impact of higher prices. The average new car price is approaching $50,000. For a lot of people, that means a monthly payment around 800 bucks. And with people getting squeezed by inflation in other areas of their lives, not to mention car-related categories like car insurance, which is way up, gas prices have started to tick up. This is why people are falling behind. It's tough to swing that $800 a month payment. Wow. Can I come back to housing for just a second, Ted, and ask a question? I remember a time, which shows my age, when mortgages, fixed mortgages, were often assumable uh, by, by, the, by, the next, by the person who's buying the house. Mm. Why is that no longer the case? Did the banking business just decide, hey, this is a bad deal for us, we're not going to let people assume mortgages? It's actually prohibited on conventional federally backed mortgages. It is allowed in some isolated instances with certain FHA loans and VA loans, but we're talking about a much smaller slice of the market. It would be nice though, to take over somebody's three or 4% yes. rate, because that's a key point. 80% of current homeowners have a mortgage rate below 5%. That's why people don't wanna move or trade up right now because that three or four percent rate is going to become seven or eight. Well, Tyler, you should head out to. There is a company called Rome, R O A M, that was just profiled in the Wall Street Journal. That's trying to get uh, the ability for people to do just to, to, that. To do that, to, to assume mortgages, assumable interesting, mortgages. Interesting. Interesting. It's a rather antique thought, but uh, there it is. I think they're joining us on the show tomorrow. In fact, thank you guys. Wow. Appreciate that, cool. Ted. Thank you as well. We appreciate your time today, uh, Ted Rossman. And that's the consequences of what happens with the Fed in just a couple of minutes here. We're used to some pretty big market swings on these decision days, but actually, Susquehanna. Chris Murphy says the implied move for the S&P today is less than 1%. That's the lowest for a Fed day in nearly two years, which takes us back before the current hiking regime began. Let's ask Dom Chu what to make of it. Hi, Dom. All right. So what we have right now is a market that is very much in tune with this idea that rates are going to stay fairly steady here and that the Fed is going to at least take a pause. If you look at the Dow Industrials, the S&P and the Nasdaq, this is the typical wait and see that we are 
getting ahead of that big Fed rate announcement and certainly before the press conference from Fed Chair Jay Powell. At the highs of the session, we were up roughly 18 points in the S&P 500, up five points at the lows. So generally trying to bounce back from yesterday. 44.48 your level in the S&P. The Dow Jones was up one half of 1%, 180 points in the composite index for the NASDAQ, down about two-tenths of 1%, 13,652. Places that we will keep a close eye on with regard to the broader market and what's happening right now. Take a look at some of those Treasury sides of things. You see the Treasury yields for the 10-year note yield specifically drifting slightly lower to 4.32%, a la your conversation right now about housing and rates. If you look at some of the industry-specific moves that we are seeing, take a look at some of those moves that we're looking at with regard to sectors and whatnot. If you look at those, check out what's happening with crude oil on the energy side of things. Just about flat on the session, 91.15, though, but still near cycle highs here, going all the way back to November of last year. Keep an eye on WTI crude. And then watch some of those stocks and sectors on the move. We always talk about real estate utilities being more rate-specific here, financial uh, financials also kind of rate sensitive communication services and technology the laggards here on those higher interest rates generally speaking and we'll get a quick check on the ipo with tyler kelly the hot one clavio today coming off of its highs of the session so far right now but arm holdings 53 dollars and eight cents a share instacart right now also down remember instacart priced at just around 30 arm holdings at 51 so again a little bit of a take back here in some of the profits we've seen tyler i'll send things back over to you all right dom thank you very much from student loans to striking auto workers consumers being pressured uh, on multiple fronts brookings institution david wessel will tell us what that means for the fed's next move after this quick break Welcome back to CNBC's special Fed Day show. We're in Washington and just minutes away from the decision on interest rates. Our next guest says he's not expecting a surprise today. We will likely see a pause, but it's what the Fed plans to do moving forward that will be key. Here with us is David Wessel, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at Brookings. Great to see you again. Good to be with you, Kelly. And this, we mentioned it off the top, but I think we should drill down on it once again. Um, Right now, the market is pricing at about 88 basis points of cuts. Yes, we're talking about the cuts next year because for the long end on rates, it really is going to come down to, do they confirm that? Okay, three or four cuts next year. What if they dial it back to two? You know, like, and and it's by, just to throw this in the mix as well. There's been massive shorting amongst the hedge fund community of rates to the point at which regulators are kind of taking notice. So a lot is hinging on on what we That's learned right. today. So you're absolutely right that there's not much suspense about what they're going to do at two o'clock. Takes all the fun out of covering the Fed. It's like covering the World Series when they tell you the score before the game, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so everybody is going to be looking at what they say going forward. Last time, there were a number of people seeing rate cuts at the middle of 2024. Uh, I'm not sure whether they're going to do that again. They have to be careful not to get the markets too giddy, hmm. because if the markets start to expect rate cuts, and rate, then they may get more juice for the economy than they like to see. It's- so it's a tough call for them, and a lot of it has to do with what their forecast is, both for inflation and economic growth. No, you're right, and it's exactly what Jamie Cox told us at the beginning of this hour, where he said once they know that the rate hike cycle is over, you start to see yields decline, you start right. to see people pile. He said cash will no longer be king, people are going right. to pile back into stocks, you know, financial conditions ease. One of the things that makes this interesting for us who've watched this for a while is there's always been this question about how long are the lags in monetary policy. And I'm sympathetic to the view that the lags are shorter now because they tell you so much all this forward guidance, the bond market reacts very quickly. So they have to be careful about how they calibrate that when they put it's their SCP together and the, what the how much says. We just put a little comment up there saying inflation is cooperating with the Fed. How much? Really? A lot or a little? 
I think it's cooperating a lot in that it's coming down. That's what they want to see. And people seem to have looked at the last number and if you thought inflation was coming down, you pointed to the half of the indicators that said it was. And if you didn't think it was coming down, you pointed yeah. to the other one. It was just kind of one of those mixed reports. Um, so I think it's cooperating a lot in that all they want to see is it's coming down. What they don't want is unhappy surprises of it going up. Now, the big but question people, is how people quick. Don't, people don't seem to feel it coming down. Well, that's true, but that's a different question. It, the it is Fed a different is trying question, to steer but it's an the, important question. It's in, particularly politically. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't think people are convinced that inflation is coming down. And also, people look at the level of prices. For sure. They don't recognize that if it's going up at a slower rate, that's victory. So what makes Jay Powell happy may not make Joe or Jill Sixpack happy. Yeah. And that's a big political problem. But from the Fed's point of view, if inflation continues to come down gradually, the pace of the labor market slows a little bit, they can afford to be patient. What they have to worry about is that doesn't happen. And there's this other wrinkle about oil prices. We, if oil prices are up, you know headline inflation is going to go up. And the Fed wants to look through this, but they can't seem like they're not paying attention because, you know, I have to buy gas. I don't really core. I don't buy core. Not to get super wonky about this, but. Kelly Evans, not to get super wonky. <laughs> if only we really focused on nominal GDP, that would help clear up a little bit of the confusion, right? Because the difference between the way that energy and food acts like a tax and maybe it's supply. The point being nominal GDP was growing at almost 14 percent at the end of 2021. That. 14% is an astronomical number. We're down to like 4%. So that just tells you how much potential we could really have for inflation and all the rest of it going right. forward. So, you know, there are economists who advocate that the Fed should have a nominal GDP target. And I think the counter has been, it may be hard to explain to people. that if, And to track. And, and yes, because GDP gets revised and all that. But I think that part of this is, what do you use to steer the economy? And you want to look at things like nominal GDP. And then how do you communicate? with the people in the markets. And I think where uh, the Fed has been successful in holding down inflation expectations is by suggesting <coughs> a lot of Excuse resolve me. to keep inflation coming down. Mm -hmm. And we, in a sense, we're in an inflation targeting regime now. They don't talk about it that way, but that's what they're really Haven't doing. Haven't we always been, or? Uh, no, and you know, when you and I started covering this stuff, people didn't, weren't so sophisticated about inflation expectations. There was a lot of M2, and well, maybe not when you started. Right. No, there were, <laughs> the, the people who still want M2 to come back. Yeah. Still odds want M2 odds to come of a back. soft landing, high, low. What do high. you say? I high. think they're high. High. Yeah. It'll be one of the rare times. But. It will. But uh, look, I think things are breaking the right way. I'm not right. sure. I'm not confident. Uh, I wouldn't. If I were the Fed, I wouldn't bet on it. But compared to where I was six or nine months ago, I think it's much more likely. David, thanks very much. Always great to see you. Oh, good to see really you. One of the treats are coming down here. David oh, Wessels shucks. with Brookings. <laughs> we are about six minutes away from the Fed decision and about 40 minutes from the chair's press conference. Our team coverage picks back up after this quick break. Welcome to a special Fed Decision Power Lunch from Washington, D.C. I'm Tyler Matheson. Kelly Evans right here with me in Washington. Just a few minutes away now from the release of the Fed's decision on interest rates, top of the hour, and we'll see what our panel is predicting. But first, let's check on the markets and where they stand. As you can see, the Dow is uh, about uh, three-fifths of a percentage point higher. The S&P higher by about a fifth of a percentage point, but NASDAQ roughly flat. The 10-year note yield at 4.319. Let's get to our panel, CNBC 
contributor Stephanie Link of Hightower, John Bellows of Western Asset Management, David Kelly of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Greg Ip of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to all of you. Stephanie, let me begin with you. How close uh, is this Fed to being done raising interest rates, and could this be it? Yeah, I've been saying for a while that we're in the ninth inning in terms of this rate cycle uh, hike, um, and I still believe that to be the case. So whether they go, probably not today, whether they go in November or not, I think we're, 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 cl we're close to the, to the end. That being said, Tyler, the economy continues to have a lot of momentum. We're seeing above-trend GDP growth led by the consumer, led by pockets of manufacturing, and that's leading to continued persistent inflation. We've made progress. We, were, we went from 9.1% CPI to 3.7% uh, in, a, in a year's time, So, but it's not close to where the Fed wants to go. And we know that core PCE number is really what they pay attention to. At 4.2%, it's still much too high. So rates stay higher for longer, and that's what we have to live with. John Bellows, do you buy that uh, argument? Rates stay higher for longer, but the Fed stays where it is right now. We're near the end of the cycle. You know, I actually think we're a little bit closer than what Stephanie just said. If you look at the inflation numbers, for instance, you know, on a three-month basis, they're actually much better than on the one-year basis. And what that signals is that the more recent progress on inflation has been substantial. I think similarly for growth. You know, we've had a good growth year, but more recently what we've started to see is some cracks in that. You know, housing starts this week was notable for having a big turn. So I think we're much closer in terms of inflation being closer to target. I think we're closer in terms of seeing some slower growth. As a consequence, I don't think the Fed needs to make much change today. I think you can leave interest rates unchanged and leave their forecasts unchanged because a lot of progress has been made. Um, you know, and that, that is proceeding carefully today. Greg, what are you watching? So, you know, in the old days when I started covering the Fed, in the statement they had something that was called the bias or the balance of risks. And essentially what this was saying was even though we may not have changed rates today, what we're telling you is where we think the likelihood is of moving in the future. And that was in essence t talking about whether they were more worried about inflation being a problem or more worried about unemployment being a problem. And essentially for the last few years, the balance of risk has been to tighten further, that all else equal, it was more likely that, that they would go again, that, that they would not go. In the last few weeks, I think starting with Chair Powell's con uh, uh, speech at Jackson Hole, we've seen the needle subtly move back towards not quite, but almost to a neutral balance of mm. risks. And I think that what I'm especially looking forward to uh, the press conference for is to hear whether he ratifies the view that rather than being in the position of, we're going to raise rates unless the data says otherwise, I'm looking for a comment that effectively says, we're going to keep rates where they are unless the data says otherwise. Mm. David Kelly, let's get a quick 20-second uh, thought from you. Uh, you expect the Fed to sound hawkish, but maybe uh, act a little more dovish. Yeah, I don't expect them to raise rates to today, uh, but I think you'll see one dot still say, uh, the dots will still say one more hike this year. So I think the messaging will still be cautiously hawkish. I do think they should be done, and I think they probably are done, because I do see some softening in the economy here. That's very interesting. So you think they are done, uh, but they will sound, uh, leave open the possibility of a, uh, of a move up uh, later in the week. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. 